Okay, so as Bertie said, we're reading from Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are, you, blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Morning again. Please do keep your Bibles open. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in and amongst us. Uh, please, Heavenly Father, convict us of the truths you would have us learn uh, this morning that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, friends, put up your hand if you've ever heard of a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. I'm very interested to know how many people have heard of this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Good. Well, I'm glad to uh, tell you about what it is. The perseverance of the saints is a term used to describe a thoroughly biblical doctrine. It's basically a teaching that God will ensure that Christians, who in the Bible are called saints, in the Bible just a saint is a Christian, will keep following Jesus. That is, they will persevere to the end. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith, which uh, our Presbyterian brothers uh, use, but funnily enough, the Anglicans basically wrote, uh, has a section on this doctrine, and it says, chapter 17, part 1, on the perseverance of the saints, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, that is, they whom God has accepted in Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. It's an extremely comforting doctrine. If God has called you into his family, that is, if you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then God's choice is absolute. You can never fall away. He will bring you safely into eternity. But of course, for many Christians, and almost certainly for a sizable portion of any church, this doctrine raises issues of great heartache. For many of us, no doubt, can think of a loved one, someone close to us, for whom it appears that they once acknowledged the Lordship of Jesus, but now it appears they do not. We rightly, desperately hold to the hope that their turning away from Christ is temporary. In speaking about saved sinners truly chosen by God, point three of chapter 17 of that same Westminster Confession says, nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency and corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation, namely reading the word of God, prayer and fellowship, neglecting those things, fall into grievous sins and, importantly, for a time continue therein. We understandably hope and desperately pray for our loved ones who, by all appearances, have fallen away, that that is actually their situation, that they will eventually make it evident that God has, in fact, called them by turning back and persevering in Christ. But is it possible to know which category someone falls into? Is it possible to know whether someone will eventually persevere in Christ as opposed to completely fall away? Well, our passage today actually has much to say in response to that weighty question. It says a lot more, but it has much to say in response to that weighty question. So we turn now to this somewhat, I'm going to say, sobering word of God. We're in a section of Matthew's Gospel whereby we're seeing large chunks of teaching from Jesus about the character of those who are, are truly members of his coming kingdom. The scene gets set from verse 1. It's a big scene setting. It says, that same day, meaning the same day Jesus taught that his real family... Uh, uh, those who do the will of his uh, heavenly Father. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat into it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables. Now, that should strike you as a bit strange. I'll tell you why. 
At this point, things are really looking good for the ministry of Jesus. He's been constantly butting heads with the Pharisees and now it looks like he's winning. The crowds are turning to him and they are so numerous that he leads to make a makeshift platform by getting on a boat in order to address uh, the, the number of people. And hence, it should strike us as a bit strange that Jesus then, at that point, decides he's going to speak in parables. That is, he deliberately spoke in a way that's hard to understand. Rather than speak as a crowd pleaser, give the people what they want, he speaks as a crowd confuser. Continuing in verse 3, we get one of the parables recorded, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering seed, some fell along the path where the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered away and had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears... Let them hear. Now, I know that you and I know the secret meaning of this parable from just later on in the passage. We just heard it read out. And you've probably heard it before, right? But on the first time hearing this, I doubt anyone, including the disciples, would have understood the meaning. As a matter of fact, in a parallel account, they come and say, what does this mean? Jesus has a huge crowd and an opportunity to make a name for himself and instead he confounds the crowd with hard-to-decipher metaphors. Why does he do this? Put simply, the parables are actually a device to divide people between those who want to keep Jesus at a distance, like, you know, perhaps a boat to a shoreline kind of distance, and those who actually genuinely want to come to him to find rest for their souls. And that's actually what we learn in the middle section from our passage, which really is the key part of this whole thing. I know the parable gets a lot of attention, but I think it's actually the middle is where you get the question and the key teaching from the verse. From verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? They're rightly confused. Why would you do this? Verse 11, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. There's no question here. Jesus is deliberately working to make a distinction between his hearers, to one or the other. Those who have, presumably that is, been chosen by God to learn the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, those who have will eventually have in abundance. Those who are not chosen, their lack of knowing the kingdom of heaven will also be pushed into an even greater extreme that's more obvious. Even what they have will be taken from them. It's pushing one or the other. The only point of difference we're told about here is that the disciples came to him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It's not the disciples worked really hard to decipher the meaning of the parable in the hope that they could then work out whether or not they should follow or continue to follow Jesus. It's they came to him. 
they came to him even though they didn't know the meaning or the purpose of the parable. It's an expression basically of trust and of dependence rather than intellectual self-sufficiency. I've sometimes encountered people who appear somewhat interested in coming to know Jesus. It's part of my job. One of the great things about it is every now and then you get brought somebody, right? This person's interested. Will you talk to them? Well, well, yes, yes, I will. Uh, They appear somewhat interested in coming to know Jesus, but who insist that they need just a little bit more information before they can commit. They just need to learn a little bit more before they can make a choice. Now, at one level, of course, that is absolutely right and good and mature. Jesus himself says you've got to count the cost before you commit to being a disciple, right? But it so often, just as easily can be the case, that those who need to learn more, to work out a bit more, are actually just revealing their hardness of heart. The issue is not one of information, It's that they're simply not willing to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. They want to hold on to their own lives, their own control, their own sin. For such people, Jesus' words are designed to make their rejection more obvious. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Now, it will really help to have just a tiny bit of uh, background for the the whole Isaiah thing that he mentioned here, right? Uh, During the time of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, God had already made clear that it would only be through the judgment, the punishment of his people Israel, that her purpose of bringing blessing eventually to the nations would ever be achieved. Uh, So God chose not to intervene at this stage of their history during the time of Isaiah. Uh, He chose not to intervene with the hard hearts of his rebellious people, such that the judgment would be sure to happen. Uh, in the case, if you know your Bible history, such that they, the southern tribes would be taken off to exile in Babylon. Uh, he didn't want them to turn, lest he would then have to heal them and his word of judgment would be reversed. The Babylonian exile would certainly take place and the remnant of his people would enjoy salvation. There's a whole 10 sermons on that, especially in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Please ask me about that later. I'd love nothing more than to talk for two hours about that. Okay, well, maybe not that. But you get the gist. But so is the case here with Jesus. He must go to the cross. The Messiah must suffer and die so that salvation can be made available to Israel and to the ends of the earth. And so it will remain the case that these people are calloused and otherwise they would turn and he would heal them and and maybe Jesus wouldn't get crucified. God can choose to leave people in their own sinful rebelliousness if it suits his eternal plan. But of course, thankfully, thank God quite literally, from among the general mass of sinful humanity, in his extreme kindness, God has chosen to reveal himself to some 
you know who those some are because they're the ones who come to Jesus. They're the ones to whom Jesus will then make things clear. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes to these disciples who who have received the secrets. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And Jesus can say that because he, the one to whom all the prophets point, is about to explain what they otherwise, frankly, could not have worked out on their own. See, it's not so much that you understand Christianity in order to come to Jesus. It's more that you come to Jesus and then grow in your understanding of Christianity. Jesus says, and how wonderful that in God's providence we had it as our kids' spot this morning, Jesus says that it's the little children that you are to suffer unto me. It's the little children who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And matter of fact, unless you become like one of these children, Jesus says, you will never even see the kingdom of God. It's humble dependence. It's recognising thorough lack and that your self-sufficiency is a disaster. It's desperately clinging to Jesus to come to him. And with that, we finally come to the thing that Jesus now reveals to his disciples, hence the thing that Jesus wants us, his church, to know and to understand. Jesus characterises four ways that people might respond to him, whereby only the last way actually describes salvation. Verse 18, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears a message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is a seed sown along the path. So option one, immediate rejection. What scares me about the gospel message is that when preached, it can be said to be sown in the heart. That's what Jesus says. But because that person does not come to Jesus, they do not and therefore cannot understand it, hence it's right there for Satan to snatch away. Uh, it is comforting to know uh, every now and then uh, if you find yourself in a situation where you might be commending or even out explaining the, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to someone who gets pretty, how do I say, aggressively opposed, uh, that it's not actually you the person's attacking this is god's word and uh you, you you can sleep well that night don't ever think oh no i failed and therefore you know that person's not going to be saved because i did a bad job that, that doesn't exist verse 20 the seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy but since they have no root they last only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word they quickly fall away again. This person who ultimately rejects Jesus does so on the basis of a lack of understanding, a lack of given understanding. See, they haven't understood that the cost of discipleship is a big cost. It's really one's entire life. You must deny yourself, take up your cross to follow Jesus. It's not only persecution because of the word that drives them away but just even trouble because of the word that makes such a person quickly fall away uh, many of you will know this uh, but if I say it for the sake of those that don't and it probably bears repeating anyway uh, when I personally came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior I was 19 years old the person explaining it to me was uh, very well thought out uh, and uh, 
He told me the gospel using two ways to live. Yes, there is a God. All people have rebelled against him. What's he going to do? He's right and holy. Therefore, all people face death and judgment. But he's a loving God and he sent his son Jesus into the world to take the death and judgment that I deserve. God raised Jesus up, showing that he accepted that sacrifice and showing that anyone who believes in him has a chance at new life. And uh, then and then I wanted to turn. I said, yes, I want to stop living my own life my own way and start living under the lordship of Jesus. I want him as my saviour, which of course, and like I say, a lot of you know this, but some don't, my, the person telling me, who was my uncle, he said, no. And he folded up the paper, gave it back. You need to think about it. Read the verses again. Sleep on it. It was very wise of him to do that because he knew that if I was going to be saved, nothing he did could prevent that from happening. God the Holy Spirit is the evangelist who calls people. And uh, that it really makes sense to get someone to count the cost. Otherwise, you've got the shallow soil problem. You've got the hype of the moment decision. And as soon as the trouble comes and the reality hits, they're like, what have I done? See you later. I'm out of here. Any Pilgrim's Progress fans here? Yeah, there's another thing you need to rewrite. Perseverance of the Saints, Pilgrim's Progress. We're getting more reform this morning, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, John Bunyan, wonderful classic work. As a matter of fact, at one time in history, it was the most popular book second to the Bible in the English language. Uh, there's a wonderful scene when the protagonist, a guy named Christian, just in case you're wondering what he's going to be, uh, Christian enters uh, a, a, a city that sort of is designed to, rec to, to show that he's, he's uh, trusting Jesus. And uh, as he, he knocks on the door, the, the doorman opens it, grabs him and quickly pulls him in. And he does himself, why, why did you do that? And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, mate, it's just that anyone comes knocking on this door, they want to come in. See that, that big tower over there, by the way? There's a, there's a guy there with a bow and arrow, and if he sees someone wanting to get in, he wants to shoot straight away, right? It's a good little illustration of anyone who actually wants to come to know Jesus. It's right then that you will expect Satan to want to snatch it away. It's right then that you want to see the worries of this life. It's right then that you want to see anything that's going to get in the way to actually come and take the person. Well, there's the first two. Verse 22, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. You remember, hopefully, the words of John the Baptist to those who would enter the kingdom of heaven, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so when Jesus says the worries of this life, along with the deceitfulness of wealth, make the person unfruitful, I take it he means that they eventually fall away, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not talking about they do a million things and they become Billy Graham, it's right, it's they don't keep with repentance on account of the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Now the worries of this life can be such an insidious problem, can't they? Uh, there is no end to the amount of stress that one may foist upon themselves in current Western culture. If you want to be more stressed, I can help you real easy, right? Because it's just the world we live in. Uh, Jesus is right to say, who by worrying can add 
an hour to their life or, you know, change a hair on their head, you can't. But I think that word is possibly more pertinent, pertinent to us in Western culture in our time in history than almost any other. Uh, how many hours... Someone put up their hand, be really honest, tell me, how many hours do you think I ought to work a week? You're going to have to be really brave. This is going to be... I knew this would be hard. Don't be a chicken. Just have... How many hours ought I work in a week? What a man. Hit me. What's that? 38. Never fails to amaze me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 60. Anyone want to fight on that? Just guess. How many? I honestly do not know. In ministry, one of the difficult things, you know, I'm in the shower at 9 o'clock at night and I'm thinking about a line in a sermon. Is that work or not? Like, how do you know, right? The point is... Survey after survey, you see uh, so many people in their professions, you've got the person who's doing the work and you've got the general perception of those who know about the person doing the work. There's almost always a discrepancy. The person doing the work says, I've never do enough. And everyone else says, oh, yeah, no, 38 hours. Even 60 hours sometimes will be better than what I might imagine is a normal work week. Uh, so it is in almost any profession. There is no end to the worries of this life. And frankly, you just got to fight it. And the implications I'll talk about how we're going to do it. And of course, so very much in our neck of the woods, even more than the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth is also a dreadful problem. Question, how does one give up worshipping the false god of financial security? How does one give up worshipping the false god of financial security? I've thought about this because I've prepared, so I've got some answers, but I want to hear you guys first. Give me anything. doesn't matter. You're right on the spot, so, you know, no one's going to judge you. Any idea, doesn't matter what it is. Any way to give up worshipping the false god of financial security? Hit me. Go. Practice generosity. Practice generosity. Amen, brother. That's got to be right. It is right. It's from the Bible. What else? Don't worry, don't feel bad to be wrong, you know, you're, just, you're on the spot. Anything. Give it all away. <laughs> yep. Then you might become a burden to others, but hey, that's a great answer. Good on you, brother. And good on you if you're not being a chicken. Anything else? Come on. Unemployment. Un seek unemployment? No, no, just unemployed. Become unemployed. And you, yeah, wow. Who wants to voluntarily become, well, yeah, that could do it. That's a great answer. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Oh, there's a, I'm going to repeat it for the people online, sorry. Stop looking at the brochures with all the fancy things you can buy and all the special. That, that, that's a wonderful idea. Uh, now, the purpose in me asking you this is not to get the right answer, it's to get you thinking about it whatsoever because in our culture this is even more pertinent than the worries of this life. That you think about it is already a huge step. You've actually already had a great implication of the Word of God this morning, if you're even thinking about it. I'll tell you my answers. Number one, recognise that financial security does not exist. Matthew 6.19, moth and vermin destroy, thief will break in and steal. 
I know we can afford the illusion of financial security in our neck in the woods, but there is never a firm guarantee that tomorrow you'll still have a house and a savings account. I know we got the illusion because that's almost always what it is, but financial security does not exist. This is a fickle, fallen world and thieves will always want to break in and steal. Second, redirect your effort towards heavenly treasure. It's Jesus again. That's why I know it's right because it's not really my idea. It's Jesus' idea, right? Jesus actually wants for you to be rich. Never thought you'd hear me say that, did you? Jesus wants you to be rich. How do you know? Because he literally commands you to seek treasure. It's just that where most people who say they get it wrong (laughs) is seek treasure where? In heaven. Not on earth where moth and rust destroy. You can't even bring the clothes you're wearing when you get to heaven, right? Not that I'm saying you'll be naked, or maybe you will, I don't know. I don't want to think about that, that's too awkward. But (laughs) there's two things you can bring with you. One is your own godliness, and the other one is other people. That's the only thing you can bring with you, your own godliness and other people. Many of you have heard this before, but it bears repeating. The typical thinking of the average Australian regarding their life plan is get the best education in order to get the best job. Once you've got the best job, you get the best house in the best suburb that you want to live in. You get the biggest mortgage, and so you're trapped into the cycle of you can't quit your job because you've got the big mortgage. And then if you're a Christian now with your good mortgage house and your good job, you'll look around and you might find a church in which you might be able to serve. Of course, for Christians, it's got to be the entirely opposite way around, doesn't it? You look for the place where you can serve Jesus. Then you find out how much money you need in order to live in that place to serve. And then you find out what job you need in order to live in that place and serve. Verse 23. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Uh, Obviously, this is the person who is like the little child. Jesus, I need you. I recognise. I don't even understand the parable. I know we understand it because he told us. But at the first, why do you speak to them in parables? I don't know what this means. But I recognise that my intellectual self-sufficiency is ridiculous. I recognise that my standing before God is hopeless. I need to come to you. That is the person who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And that is the person who grows in their dependence. They grow into childlikeness. <laughs> How you are growing up, you're growing down if you're in Christ. And that's producing a crop 30, 60, 100 times. Now, back to the question I posed at the start Can you know with certainty which soil a person is on? The answer is no, you cannot, not with certainty. The wind blows where it wants, no one knows it's coming or going. But you can know of yourself, you can examine yourself to know where you stand. If you're horrified at the possibility of falling away, if you look at that as a tragedy, to be, have the, 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 the worries of this life choke out the fruitfulness, then please rest assured that you are therefore on good soil. If it horrifies you, if you're heartbroken that that loved one has fallen away, uh, you're on the good soil. In fact, those who truly come to Jesus 
are those who grow in their understanding of the kingdom, are those who heed the warnings about falling away. That's one of the means by which God gives us to persevere. He makes us fear the warning. And they obviously produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Brothers and sisters, apart from prayer, the best thing you can do for the sake of your loved one, who you rightly, desperately hope is only temporarily backsliding, is actually to make sure that you yourself are persevering in the faith. It's my great hope that those I know who are in that falling away category will one day, I pray, come say, Ben, you're still going, help me out. That'll be wonderful. Very quickly, by way of implication, it may be the case that you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus. And so I ask the question to you, have you heard and understood? Have you recognised that your self-sufficient rebellion, your rejection of God, and it is rejection, whether you think that way or not, could be just passive rejection, I'm okay, I don't need God. Whatever it is, your rejection of God renders you liable to his judgment because you're living as a tenant who's never paid any rent, basically, and you need Jesus to stand in your place lest you face him on your own. If that's you, stop delaying, stop making excuses, stop frankly being a coward. Turn and put your faith in Jesus. Secondly, for those who are, which I speak to the people here as a church, what measures have you got in place to aid in your perseverance? I've got a measure in place to keep me away from the dentist, partly because I have a phobia of dentists and I hate them. And not the people, I love, they're wonderful people, but, you know, in, in terms of their, their office, I hate the dentist. Um, had a horrible experience once upon a time, two teeth really close together, needles shoved through the two of them, pulled them, anyway. You don't want to think about that. Uh, I can't go without freaking out. You know what my, my measure in place is to avoid the dentist? It's simple, I brush my teeth. That's the measure. Now... Am I going, imagine I could just know for sure that I'll never have to see a dentist again, I don't know that, but imagine, you know, there was a big, God put a stamp on my forehead, never has to see a dentist again, right? Oh, good, I'll stop brushing my teeth. Uh-uh-uh-uh. No, of course I keep brushing my teeth, because I agree with God, I never want to see a dentist again. <laughs> what measures have you got in place to ensure your, per you know, you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven? Yes, you are. Well, what are you doing to keep persevering in the faith? I'll give you three answers and they're the most tried and tested and cliche things, but I don't care because truth is still more important than the fact it's a tried and tested cliche. It's called the Word of God, prayer and fellowship. Anyone tries to tell you something else, they're just trying to sell you something new. Word of God, that's your Bible, prayer and fellowship. For goodness sake, join a growth group if you haven't joined one already. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your incredible mercy, though there is nothing at all rightly compelling you to do so other than your love and grace, that you choose some, some to whom you reveal the secrets of the kingdom. You choose some to come to Jesus like little children and that you therefore enable those little children to persevere to the end. Father, may we in cooperation with your sovereign goodness, seek the means of persevering. May we not give up meeting together. May we not give up meditating on your word and relying and depending on you in prayer. 
Father, for those loved ones known to us, for those even very close to us, for whom it appears that they've turned their backs on Jesus, we earnestly and desperately throw ourselves on your mercy and we pray that in your love and kindness you would choose to show them grace, that you would turn them to Christ in repentance and that on the last day they would indeed stand firm. Father, we pray that in the meantime that our example of perseverance might be something that stirs them, something that pricks their conscience uh, in order to see them uh, recognise the goodness that they're missing out on. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.